Welcome to Rage Worth Watching, where we're exploring the rage-filled films of the last few decades. I'm your host, a man who gets quite upset when my tea is not the right temperature. My co-host is Guy, who was going to go to a protest last week, but ended up watching an episode of Doctor Who instead. <laughs> Hello, Guy. Hello, Ron. So, I don't know if we're the right guys to do this, <laughs> but uh, uh, we're covering rage for quite a while here. We got a, a lot of really interesting films lined up. So we're doing something different and something that we didn't really anticipate when we started the show, right? We're going to do Doctor Who and maybe throw in an occasional movie. And we ended up in this place and we will be talking about in the episode where we decided we wanted to have a season of films on a related topic. And in fact, we kind of went crazy and we have put together dozens and dozens we of topics. numerous lists. <laughs> yes. Once again, between that and Doctor Who, I mean, we're going to need to hire clones or something at some point because so, we're not going to make it, but hopefully we can get through a few of them. <laughs> so this is the first one, and it was inspired by your desire to cover Network, which we'll be talking about somewhat yeah. extensively both today and may, in the next episode. May have been the first movie we discussed doing, I think. I yeah, think yeah. We have done one-off movies and guest choice movies, but nothing that was sort of part of a bigger, bigger theme like this. And for this, we are, so we're not talking about a specific movie today, but we're actually going to talk about quite, we're going to do at least capsule summaries of all the films that we're going to be covering, but it's actually much more. It's quite a meaty episode. We have as our guest is going to be Professor Maura Spiegel, who we originally contacted because she wrote the biography of Sidney Lumet and he directed network and he directed quite a lot of other films that we really like. And so we're going to talk with her both about teaching film and about Sidney Lumet and then about all the films that we're going to cover. So there's quite a lot we're doing today. <laughs> yeah. Anything else you want to say before we get into the episode? No, uh, I don't think it's too much of a spoiler to say that uh, it's a it's a heck of a book, very readable. Uh, but we'll we'll get into that. I imagine having no idea what's coming, which is of course a, another lie. But, uh, <laughs> no, no, of course we we have uh, just finished recording the interview, and I think it went really, really well. Quite yeah. happy with it. Yeah, I think uh, I think this will be a fun one. And the other difference this season, I mean, we've had guests do these one-off movies, but we're going to have quite a lot of guests. We're getting guests for as many of these films as we can, because they really give us some additional insight. And that's, that's definitely interesting too. So mm -hmm. with that, let's get into the episode. So Professor Maura Spiegel, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Just welcome. So much. So there's a lot we want to talk to you about today, but first you're at Columbia in the Center for American Studies and you do a whole lot of stuff. Could you give us a rundown on, on all that stuff you do? Mm. I do have a very weird academic life because it spans, I mean, my real home is in the Department of English and Comparative Literature. Um, I teach in American Studies. I also teach in a program called Narrative Medicine. I'm currently teaching a film course to first-year medical students. So it's quite a, a range, and, and so I teach film in different contexts, which means I teach it in different ways, depending on what the purpose of the course is. So why would medical students be taking a film class? <laughs> Good question. Yeah, they wonder too. <laughs> 
There's a program at Columbia that started here called Narrative Medicine, which is really trying to increase caregivers' capacity to reflect on what they're doing, to listen better, to be more related, to take care of themselves, to work on burnout. Working with works of art and representation is one of the ways that we do it. And in their first year, they get a choice between a range of topics that they can choose from to do this narrative medicine thing. And my course is on film. And so I get people who love film. And it's mm -hmm. and the idea, is, um, as I see it, is really to use the movies to try to help them access their experiences. I mean, they're, they're just starting out, but they're already having um, contact with, with patients, uh, is how, how it works at Columbia. So there is a lot of... Um, a lot of stuff for them to process and they are, you know, they call it drinking from the fire hydrant medical school, you know, <laughs> so they're really pretty overwhelmed. So it's a place to kind of slow down. We talk in detail about different films and then I often give them writing prompts that hopefully draw out some of their experiences. And it's kind of an interesting experience for me too. Huh. Hey. Interesting. Are you familiar with the documentary series a while back where they followed a bunch of students through medical school from their first year through, I think, their fourth or something. It was, um, it was really interesting. And, and, and along the lines of what you're talking about, I mean, their lives just were shredded in that yeah, process. Yeah. I don't know it. I'd love to know it. I'll, I can, if you can remember the title yeah, of it. I'll, 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 I'll have to yeah. look that up and see if I can find yeah. it Yeah, there's lots of studies. I'm not really big on the word empathy, but um, it's a complicated demand to put on top of them. But <laughs> but they do get tested for empathy, and there's a massive drop in the course of four years. Wow. Oh, Just what we want. Doctors have come out not caring about us. <laughs> it comes back. It comes back, but it, they really lose a lot of it during the, that education. Wow. Oh, yeah. huh. Speaking of using film that way, I want to talk about our agenda today, just give people a sense of what we're doing here. And so first, we would like to spend some time learning from your experience about how to approach discussing a film topic lo like what we're doing this season, which we plan to do a lot more of in the future. And then since we're kicking off the season with network, we'd like to delve into the career of Sidney Lumet, which you may have a few things to say about. Yeah, a few. To be clear, she wrote the biography. <laughs> <laughs> and finally, we want to go over the films that we have lined up for the season, in particular network, and just chat with you about them. Okay. Um, but to start out, in terms of teaching film and topics, well, so what we're doing this season, and it's the first time we're trying this out, is what happened was originally Guy really, when we started watching some one-off movies for the podcast, because we were focusing on the Doctor Who TV show and then the Prisoner TV show, but we would throw in some movies once in a while. And Guy really wanted us to cover network. And so we thought about doing Sidney Lumet, all the films of Sidney Lumet. And then we kind of evolved it to the topic we have today. But first, Guy, what was, what's the inspiration for you? Uh, for network? Yeah. I just, uh, I really love the movie. <laughs> I think it's, <laughs> I think it's funny. I think the, the acting and the cinematography, everything comes together for me. And I love, uh, I love the way that, Petty Chayefsky phrases things. It's not always the most natural dialogue, but it's it's memorable dialogue. And I I love the theme of uh, you know the question of 
Are people being dehumanized? And if so, is that necessarily a bad thing? You know, I think that's uh, <laughs> an interesting question. So, you, so you're pro dehumanization? No, no, I'm, I, I, I still lean fairly much against dehumanization, but uh, you know, it, it's been a theme that's always interested me because you have like a, like in Brave New World, that's kind of, uh, kind of implicit in the society there where you have all these people who are going around having fun um, and just sort of mindlessly consuming. And so a network is kind of like a Brave New World of the mm-hmm. 1970s. Uh, so it, it, it just fascinates me for a number of reasons. As I mentioned, we started out thinking, well, let's do all the films of Sidney Lumet. Then I was looking through his filmography, and I realized, and again, we'll talk you know, more in depth about Lumet um, in a bit, but I realized that I didn't know that he was one of my favorite directors because I didn't know he had directed a whole bunch of films that, that I loved. But you know, there's a lot of podcasts that talk about a director, and we sort of thought about it and realized it would be more interesting, we thought, to contrast films that have, you know, some, at least a similar theme and see what comes out of that. So that was sort of our basis. And then thinking about, well, what's network about, and it's hard to avoid the rage aspect of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> Mad as hell. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> so, you know, since you teach film and, and you're clearly taking an interesting approach here, do you cover topics like what we're doing here? Or do you focus on the career of a director or an actor or what's your What's your approach? Yeah, I definitely, I teach a course called Politics in American Film, which is very close to to your topic. And um, mm-hmm. uh, and in that course, I really do try to explore and both the idea of films that in some way are feeding anger versus films that are exploring anger and the ways in which the targets of anger or the machine, as you would call it, are mm-hmm. defined who's mad at whom and what for, right. you know. Yeah. And they're very, very different in different films. And they do, by talking about those things, you really can sort of suss out a lot of political trends, um, both in periods and in our own moment. Mm-hmm. So that's one, one way that I do it. I, I haven't done a one director course, although there is a course at Columbia sometimes on Alfred Hitchcock, um, but that's mm-hmm. not, I don't teach it. For me, I really love trying to do different kinds of um, approaches. So I have a course that's just on the 1970s or the long 1970s, sort of begins with Bonnie and Clyde and goes right till 1980. And then I, I have a, another very, very different course, on, uh, which is called The Family in Fiction and Film. And um, that one, we really look at films that sort of through a more psychoanalytic, psychodynamic you know, developmental kind of lens. And I try to get the students to do work thinking about their own families. They take it in their senior year just as they're about to graduate and enter a new phase of life. And it's very rewarding. So I I really like the idea of thematizing, but um, coming at things from different angles. Um, if, that, if that sort of answers your question, I do mm-hmm. try to keep issues of cinematic language and all of those aspects of the technical pieces of movies alive in all of my courses because i think part of it is you know just of interest to students to to become more sort of literate and be able to close read a scene better but but also um 
am, uh, am interested in what helping students recognize what a film is doing to them, to really pay attention to what their affective experience is, because, you know, films are powerful. Yeah. Um, and, um, and try to understand what's, you know, in a way, I think of them in some sense as like a little kind of emotional MRI, you know, they, mm -hmm. they kind of scan you for what's going on in your own psyche at a certain time and, and yeah. can be a way, a kind of a lens on oneself. You know what I mean? You mentioned that you like to try different approaches. And I noticed in your book, you know, there's one chapter that starts off uh, with sort of the teleplay version of Sidney Lumet going through <laughs> the train station up to his offices above. Um, and I thought that was a clever way of, uh, you know, approaching that, that chapter. Uh, there's, there's a lot of that book that I found to admire, but I'll, we'll save that for when we get to it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much. But, yeah. You mentioned the, the mechanics of filmmaking and I think it would be easy just to focus on story and character, and obviously those are critical, but uh, something I have learned over time, I mean, with that, between the cinematography and the music, different choices will completely change the film, even if you have the exact same acting. So true. Sidney often, going back to Sidney Lumet, he often, mm -hmm. un, you know, left his movies unscored mm -hmm. for that reason. And if you score, <laughs> I've seen people sort of play around and score them. And it really, it changes. And sometimes students as a little experiment will change the music in a scene, in a, in a suspenseful scene. And it really is fun to see how it changes the whole experience. Oh, yeah. I, I've, every now and then uh, I'll see on the internet a little video somebody does like that. They, like they'll take, a, they'll take The Shining and cut it as though it were like a heartwarming family comedy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> So where are you on the auteur theory of filmmaking? You know, the idea that the director is sort of the be-all, end-all. Yeah. Um, I guess I, I think some are. Um, Sidney hated that concept, and he really loved the idea of kind of a, you know, that the movie was a collective endeavor and didn't like anything that sounded too fancy. <laughs> he liked things to be really workmanlike. Um, that was his mode, but um, but I think they're amazing, amazing auteurs out there. Right now, I've gotten very fixed on this Japanese filmmaker, uh, Koreeda, who is, makes you know one amazing film after another. And I think we've got some great American ones. I mean, if you think about someone like Kubrick, he only made he only made so many films. I mean, Sidney mm -hmm. needed to make a film almost every year; like yeah. he just had to keep working. <laughs> And he wasn't so, you know, wasn't about kind of creating this perfect object, okay. you know. So I, I think, you know, you have these very different approaches. And, and for Sydney, I think working fast and keep, he kept challenging himself in ways that, that, you know, you have this part of why I think you didn't know that he had made all those films is that he has no signature, which is part okay. of his not anti-autor, you know, perspective. He just never, he, his view was to try to, use a style that he felt suited the story he was telling right. rather than to put his own. And he sort of had a little bit of contempt for Hitchcock, whose movies all have the same style. I mean, an amazing style, a beautiful right. style, but for him, it was too consistent and too recognizable and, and predictable. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, and just to think about, I mean, what? So in '73 he did Serpico, in '74 he did Murder on the Orient Express, which is not something I would have expected, and then Dog Day Afternoon. I mean, <laughs> these are very, you know, uh, there's certainly more similarity between Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon, but and the Wiz later, which is you know its whole own thing. But before we get even more into Sydney, you've talked about what your medical students get out of it in politics and the others. What do you think the the students really get out of these yeah. classes? Yeah. Well, I can tell you what I hope they get out of it. You know, it really is, I think, a way to talk about the power of movies, their role in our society. I mean, I, I feel like movies send a million messages at us. And one of the big messages in the United States, it seems to me, in Hollywood is that um, even, you know, from the very beginning is somehow like the fact of movies themselves, these frivolous, highly <laughs> expensive products that are just for entertainment is it that's its own message you know what i mean mm -hmm. and, and i think we have you know i've also taught a course on american film genres and how these story forms develop and how artists and filmmakers kind of play with them but also how different genres can have different political messages you know um, action films are typically considered sort of right-leaning mm. And there's, you know, of course, the Western, which is so. So anyway, it's a way of of engaging both their positionality in terms of watching a film, and also really exploring, you know, it's big business. It's the invention of the movie star, which is a fascinating subject. It's, you know, it just takes in so many, so many wonderful things. So my my hope is really to make them conscious of the enormity of what's contained in these, you know, two-hour little pieces <laughs> and um, and become more critical, you know, sort of, what's the term people use, you know, like visually sophisticated, you know, just more critically aware of what they're watching and what it's doing to them and what its messages are and all those kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Talking about some of those factors, I always feel like uh, I'm most impressed by directors and, you know, producers who can take something they want to do, and it might be a social message, it might be an experimental element of filmmaking, but also find a way to marry it to materials so that the general audience can appreciate it, right? Because in a way, if you can get the money, it's easy to do a really out there film or a really socially relevant film, but it's really hard to do one that people actually want to watch. That's mm. true. This <laughs> is one true thing. I see filmmaking a lot through Sidney Lumet's lens because I spent so many years thinking about his lens and how he worked. He's the creator I feel closest to, but he, he spoke about how, you know, he simply said, if it moves me, it'll move the audience, you know? And right. the idea of skillful storytelling and how you do that, there's so many factors, you know, I mean, as you know, I mean, you, you know, the wrong casting can throw the whole thing yeah, off i yeah. mean he he made a lot of movies that he realized early on this is a bomb <laughs> it's <been a> totally <laughs> bomb but i can't really fire everybody and just go home <laughs> but you have these you know magic things that can happen like paul newman's performance in the verdict you know which sort of exceeded anything ever done before and and you have <laughs> For Sydney, it was really a, an actor's director and not afraid of language so much was about bringing the characters to life. 
but he, you know, he did it differently in different films, you know. So mm -hmm. if it was a melodrama, he'd play it up. But if it was what he would call, you know, sort of a, a naturalistic film like Dog Day Afternoon, he'd really, well, he would, um, for example, in that film, he told his, he's, he, when he was interviewing actors, when he was um, auditioning, he looked for actors who were closest to themselves. That's what he said. He just wanted people who could be themselves on the camera. No fancy acting. I think you mentioned in Dog Day Afternoon, uh, the actor who played uh, the the transvestite, was it Chris Sarandon? Yes. Uh, I, think, I think you said that Lumet told him to play it as a queen's housewife. A little, a little less Blanche Dubois, a little more Queen's Housewife. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. He really liked that. That was him. But I, you know, I wish I could give you a, a tidy answer about how great movies are made. <laughs> if I could, you know, <laughs> I'd probably be, you know, a rich lady. <laughs> well, you know, you mentioned the casting thing, and uh, I'm a, I'm a big fan of Christopher Nolan, and his film Inception is a really interesting film. But for me, at least, completely miscast, and I could not get past that. You know, it, none of the people chosen for their roles, even though each one individually is very good in all sorts of things, met the role, and it just totally threw me out. And that's one yeah. of the one I always think about with that. I always mm -hmm. wonder if they knew what was going on. <laughs> <laughs> Again, to return to Lumet, I hope you'll forgive me. Is yeah, um, would um He would rehearse his actors for a week or two, usually two weeks, sometimes three weeks, and so that every single actor was there all the time, even the smallest, you know, roles were in the rehearsal. And they knew exactly where they were in the movie when they shot it, because they couldn't always shoot it in sequence as movies, as you know, usually right. aren't shot in sequence. So mm -hmm. getting it so you know what you're all doing, what story you're trying to tell, where you are when that scene comes in, how much emotion you should, you know, be um, exuding. Right. Anyway, I think, I, I imagine that it was quite puzzling to work on Inception. <laughs> <laughs> I, ha I have a, um, a memory, and I don't, this wasn't from your book, I think it might have been from a documentary I watched or something, that for Serpico, because Pacino goes through this huge arc in Serpico, right? He sort of yes. starts out as the clean-cut, you know, cadet <laughs> and <laughs> go, goes to a very different place. And I had a memory that, like, every day during rehearsal they would do the whole script so that he would get he would have to know where he was mm. in that well, they, progression yeah. in any scene well they definitely would get to that i don't you know they had the read throughs they'd sit at the table and then they would map out the whole so they did do they did do run throughs i don't know if they did it from the beginning but they mm -hmm. definitely did run throughs every you know every day as they got close for sure I think See, I think you said in the book that they filmed it backwards so that he had the beard first. And, yeah, and, <laughs> right, okay. right, right, right. They couldn't wait for him to grow the beard. <laughs> right, so <laughs> they started backwards. That's right. Yeah, what a great film! I think. Hmm. Yeah, and well, so speaking uh, obviously already seeing lots of women. <laughs> let's talk about your biography. So you said you spent years on it. I'm always, I I I don't know how someone immerses herself in somebody else's life for so long but how long did you spend on this and i don't know it was a long time i i think mm -hmm. um six years seven mm -hmm. years something like that um 
But a lot of it for me had to do with trying to honestly, being this academic, writing, you know, articles and academic papers, how do I enter somebody else's mindset? You know, it was a whole new skill set. So a lot of it had to do with that. And then, of course, discovering there were no papers (laughs) was really kind of a shock. Um, He didn't want papers, right? He would destroy them. Yeah, yeah. He didn't like to keep things. Um, So that you know, added a big challenge. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And it took a lot of time to get to people because you have to get to people through other people and figuring out what people could get to other people. (laughs) And you got, you got unpublished materials like his father's autobiography and even drafts and all that. So yeah, his memoir was in Los Angeles at UCLA. And so I was able to look at it's handwritten manuscript, you know, and um, that was really helpful. And he did a, he also did a oral history. Um, and I spend a lot of time talking about how the two do not match. <laughs> you know? Right, right. Um, yeah. Yeah, I, I remember you'd mentioned uh, the places where he he crossed something out and wrote something completely the opposite. Yeah, right after. yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I think a lot of Sydney's life was really you know, affect deeply affected by his very unhappy family, very, very unhappy oh, yeah. family. Yeah. So it, it, it seems so unfortunate because his father was an actor all his life. And, and so Sydney was, uh, you know, from a young age and it, it feels like that connection should have allowed them to have some kind of relationship. Mm-hmm. Well, he said that he only admired his father when he was on stage, you know, I, mean, I think that yeah. was, but otherwise as he put it, he was a terrible man. Um, mm-hmm. And um, uh, but he was a wonderfully creative person, um, no question about it. So I wanted to give you some compliments uh, uh, on your approach to the biography because I I have some idiosyncrasies when I'm reading a biography. Like you know, I have gotten this book because I care about this person or what they do. And so often people are like, well, I'm going to spend the first 50, 100 pages talking about his great, great grandfather and his grandfather. And we're not even going to say the name of the subject until we get, you know, that far in. And I really appreciated that even though you have lots of material about his family and especially his father, that from the very beginning, you were providing the context for how this fit in. And you were also perfectly willing to, you know, jump forward and talk about, um, Sydney's career is part of all that. So that, that made it much more acceptable to me to spend the time <laughs> with the, peop- the people that I wasn't trying to read the book about. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. Is that something you thought about or? Yeah, a lot. I mean, I, I, um, I was interested. I mean, I am interested in the world he came from because it's kind of the world I come from. So I, I feel like I, and I don't have access to my grandparents' memoirs or the world. <laughs> the world in Poland that they came from and so forth. But I, so I, I got probably more deeply interested in it. That was strictly necessary, but I think, um, I did, I was conscious of trying to, you know, keep, keep it alive for what was coming later in his life. Hmm. The other thing I thought was interesting is that, uh, I've read a lot of these, you know, director kind of biographies where literally every movie is one chapter and maybe, and their life is kind of sprinkled throughout. And I feel like, you completely reverse that where this is very much about Lumet's life and 
you, you know, occasionally have a chapter where you get into depth into one or two movies. There's even, you know, a number of movies you don't really cover. He had so many that it would be probably impossible, but it, I, I appreciated that. It was, um, cause it can just feel like a catalog, right? Uh, when people do that. Well, weirdly, I'm working on a book on his movies now, (laughs) but for an academic press, so it's going to be a different kind of book. But I knew that book was coming, so I felt some freedom to really stay with his life, uh, knowing I would get more deeply into the films later. Very good. Yeah, I, uh, I really have been impressed with the book. I'm still a few pages from the end, but I'm, uh, very close. (laughs) uh, um, I just, uh, it's a, to me, it's an excellent biographical treatment. You, uh, you don't, uh, you don't have a lot of filler in there. That is a constant refrain of mine on our podcast is I complain (laughs) whenever there's a lot of filler. I mean, you know, when there's, there's a time for slowing things down and proper pacing and all that, you know, I'm not a complete philistine but uh but in general you know you want to you want to keep the information coming and that's um you you do that at a terrific pace i think uh, you've got the amusing anecdotes the informative facts uh, it's just a nice a nice mixture that came together uh, very well for me i'm so glad thank you one of the things you cover that i thought was interesting is is in retrospect and when you look you know, he did all these films and we said, and you look back and you can find the dozen that you know and, and really like, and, you know, probably have a couple dozen you've never seen. Um, it's easy to remember all that, but not realize that his career was like this roller coaster where people kept saying, oh, he's, he's washed up. Oh, he's, he's back. Oh, he's washed up. Oh, he's back. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I don't know how he kind of managed to just keep going with that and um uh but yeah that's that is how it happened he you know partially he really loved making he loved working he loved the work and so i think that you know he kept his eye on that but yeah he made a lot i mean you mentioned you know the sequence of um serpico murder on the orient express dog afternoon and network but in between those was a really awful movie called Love and Molly, which is really unwatchable. And it has Anthony Perkins and Bo Bridges and, you know, good people in it, but it's just awful. And then in the and he's got Equus, which is also, it's an interesting film, but it's not, it's not a great success. Um, and then some of his more minor films that I really love that, that don't get remembered very much. I hope they'll find their way back into people's attention at some point, you know? Well, and what what should people know about? <laughs> what? Yeah. Well, I really love um, the film Daniel, which is, um, you know, based on the doctoral novel, The Book of Daniel. It's a, it's a sort of fictionalized version of the Rosenbergs leading up to their execution and then the life afterlife of the children. And it's just, a, I think, a very beautiful emotionally powerful film beautifully directed um there's also these wonderful funny ones like just tell me what you want which you know it's about a the alan king plays this i I, I can't do it justice it's funny and um uh a really a really good and surprising film and and there's another sweet one called garbo talks 
that has a real following, I've found. You know, it has its following, but um, okay. people don't know it so much. And Running on Empty, there's a lot of great ones. Q&A, which is about racism in a way that's extremely powerful and still extremely uh, uh, meaningful right now. Mm. Yeah, the, the one uh, that you mentioned, uh, Tell Me What You Want, I think it's called. That, that sounded very interesting to me. I mean, the, the way you describe the main character in that, he sounds like sort of an egotistical wheeler-dealer type. I think uh, I think that might be one I'm going to have to check out. <laughs> I, I hope you like it. I, I really love it. Yeah, it, I recognize this character. That's all I can tell you. So <laughs> <laughs> but, but, um, and I, I really loved it. Um, yeah, makes me laugh. From our yeah. correspondence, I get the impression that you're not a fan of Death Trap, but I have to say that's a uh, guilty pleasure of mine. I enjoy. Oh, that. that's good. That's good. I mean, you know, it's it's great to see those actors for sure. I don't love it. It feels a little bit wooden to me because I don't know. It doesn't. It you know. But I. But um, I'm glad you. Like it, you know, I really am. Yeah. Some of his theater pieces, like. The Fugitive Kind, which is Tennessee Williams, is amazing still. I think um, Long Day's Journey into Night, pretty much recognized as, you know, masterpiece. Some people consider it top ten kind of stuff, but not all of them worked for me. Mm -hmm. I have to say, you know, his last film, Before the Devil Knows You're Dead, just, uh, and I've only seen it once, uh, but it just really hit me. I mean, oh, God, and, yeah. and then in retrospect, I feel like, you were seeing into Philip Seymour Hoffman a little bit. I mean, given what happened to him, yes, you know, yes, yeah. It's 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 an amazing film, I think, and it's the one where he really he really just packs the punch on his dad. You know, <laughs> he really <laughs> just lets it fly um, in a way that he hadn't done before. I think in um, the book, I think hmm. you you said you think he knows it was his last film. Yeah, I do think so. Yeah. It freed him up a little. But yeah, they, he did some brilliant little changes in the movie, you know, in the screenplay. He also, as I mentioned in the book, he, he received this script in the mail, and he read it, and he wanted it, you know, which was so unusual for someone of his, you know. And the, the writer um, was just flabbergasted <laughs> to get a call from Sidney Lumet, you know. Um, and um, yeah, he didn't even know the the gender of the <laughs> the gender of, um uh when he was talking about the movie he changed the in the screenplay the two robbers are not brothers and he turned them into brothers mm -hmm. and that sort of created a greek tragedy there you know mm -hmm. So before we continue on, anything else we want to talk about with Lumet's Lumet, I still do that <laughs> Lumet's career. Yeah. 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 I noticed. Oh, I'm, I'm, no. I was going to say, I noticed that you you took pains in the preface to give us the correct pronunciation, which was probably wise because that's what I used to think too. Was <laughs> that it was a French name. Yeah, <laughs> he liked to think it was, but <laughs> I guess I would just say that he really liked exploring kind of the ordinary person's struggle. You know, like people, just ordinary people confronted with bizarre and interesting circumstances and just how surprising people are. He just loved stories where the characters just like completely, you can't anticipate what's going to happen. And that 
that was part of his sort of New York, I would say, gestalt, you know, mm-hmm. this feeling about what Martin Luther called the miracle of personality. I think he really loved loved people that way. You mentioned uh, that one of the things that occurs a lot in his movies is uh, you'll have one man who's kind of bullying, trying to humiliate another man. Mm-hmm. So that struck me as in, in, interesting as a theme that can be identified throughout the work. I mean, there's always going to be conflict, almost always in a movie, but uh, that you know that specific type of conflict uh, is it's interesting that he would gravitate to that. He has so um, so few women, really. I mean, he really liked the world of men at work. That was kind of his field of interest. Mm-hmm. And I think his experience in the war, being not the war itself, but the army, the level mm-hmm. of humili- conscious and deliberate humiliation that was going on in the ranks, mm-hmm. I think, really traumatized him. And um, that became, and I think also as a kid, he was kind of bullied in different ways, you know. But I think that way in which men establish themselves in relation to one another and how that, you know, he really, really couldn't get enough of that. Um, mm-hmm. He has this beautiful thing he said to his son-in-law, Bobby Cannavale. He said, there's so many ways we can be men, you know, and we don't see that very much in the movies. Oh, yeah. And he also, you mentioned in the book, and I don't want to dwell on this because it's it's uh, kind of a horrific topic, but uh, it's possible that the reason he never continued his memoirs was because he was writing about a particularly nasty memory of something that happened during the war, and his memoirs just stop after that. And yeah. that was that was a confrontation between men, you know, that... Yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it's uh, definitely a guy with a lot of psychological depth, but at least he spun it into gold, so to speak. (laughs) Most of the time. (laughs) It seems like I've heard with various biographers that after they get done spending years, you know, examining someone else's life, they end up sort of hating their subject. (laughs) Kind of understandably, I'd probably hate myself if I was doing that, but... It, it doesn't sound like that happened to you. No, I, I didn't. I, I really was aware of um, being happy that I didn't sit down with him ever because hmm. I, I feared that he might have had kind of a little bit of a his-generation sexist way of talking to me. Hmm. And I was hmm. a little afraid of that. And I, you know, even when I was starting, he was still around. And I didn't, I, I encountered him, I saw him at events, but I didn't want to talk to him. <laughs> and it was sort of protecting my love of him. And I, yeah. but I think that also, you know, he was not perfect and he really knew it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he, but people I spoke to, I mean, they, they loved him very, very much. And that was very moving. It wasn't just, Oh, I have to say something nice about Sydney mm-hmm. now. Um, there was real depth of feeling, and that was wonderful. Yeah, that that comes through time and time again in the book that people remember him as being uh, almost always upbeat, and uh, you know he uh, he would be he was up building to the people who were around him. You know, he was always trying to be their cheerleader, sort of. Yes, make people feel safe. Yeah, it's an interesting. 
a really interesting feature that mm-hmm. he, he wanted people to feel safe around him. He wasn't really a confrontational guy, but you had an incident in there where one of the actors was berating someone and he went off on the actor and threatened to re-shoot all of his scenes and fire him. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know. It was his family. The set was his family. And don't mess with it. <laughs> don't mess with it. Yeah. Yeah. So talking about this season, and we, you know, we discussed mm-hmm. some about how we developed the topic. Uh, before we get into the films themselves, was there anything you wanted to discuss about the topic or any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, I, I again, I think it's a really interesting subject for our moment, you know. And, um, you know, we are in this in this time of a lot of anger <laughs> and a lot of misplaced and confused and misdirected anger and um, manipulated anger, I think. And um, so I, I think that it's a great topic for now. I think that um, I was thinking about how some th- thought that came to my mind as I was sitting with it was, you know, how many shows there are now that are about Breaking Bad, mm-hmm. you know, that this is a kind of, I don't know, some kind of moral vacuum, but that we're, we're not even sort of able to just love our movies, you know, our movie, you know, we have to have these mixed feelings about them. And, you know, I was thinking about that show, Ted Lasso, and how it, it violated that rule. You know, it was just like this completely lovable character that you, it was like, everybody was like, have you seen it? Have you seen it? It was such a relief <laughs> to enter this world where there was no ambivalence and no, no bad behavior going on by the main character. I think that, you know, my, my, focus a lot of my focus in movies is american films starts in the i mean i love the golden age but most of it starts in the late 60s through the through now and you know you start getting this you know what i call you know sort of countercultural cinema um and so you have this i think anger coming from the left which is quite different from the anger coming from the right and i find that really fascinating and have tried to Mm -hmm. suss that out in different ways i don't know Mm -hmm. if that's of interest to you but um Definitely. Yeah. I mean, we could start with network or we could start. Yeah. Well, yeah. yeah, And obviously, we maybe want to put a little extra time into that since (laughs) that's an extra knowledge. I've already heard about why a guy wanted to do it. And I know going in now, one of those secret things uh, behind the curtain, you know, we have actually already already recorded our episode in the network. So people will hear some of this again. But going into it, I, I had seen, I think, seen it but mostly only knew it for the the parts that everybody knows and so was interested to see there was actually a lot more in the film than i recalled but in it like i say i think and we put it first even though it's not chronologically first Mm -hmm. just because it seemed to define this topic in such a clear way yeah i mean i the way i understand it you know sort of looking at 70s films as a block and i think network fiction fits nicely into it is this is this tremendous anxiety on the liberal left about corporations especially from people who are sort of this younger generation of filmmakers and that and the i don't think that's where chayefsky was coming from exactly but it's in the film and there's this new thing 
that people are writing about, which is called multinational corporations. <laughs> and <laughs> the idea, um, of course, Chayefsky's real focus, I think, really was the corruption of the news by, you know, commercialization and corporate greed. You know, <laughs> but he also he's it's a satire, so he he doesn't go so easy even on you know the old guys who have all this you know nostalgia about the golden age of television and when mm -hmm. you know when when the news was pure and all this stuff he doesn't quite let that sit but i think um for me in terms of your topic you know this we see in so many of these films on your list the ones that i know at least that there is this topic of the corporation you know i think about something like mm -hmm. in a way a face in the crowd is kind of moving in that direction too but i think I was thinking about another film, which isn't on your list, which is Fight Club, and mm, how yeah. there is this rage at the corporation, but it's really a very different rage in 1999. It's a, uh, I think it's quite a right-wing film from my point of view, in that you know it's really about how corporations have have turned uh, men into consumers and um, really mm. challenged their masculinity, and this idea of you know kind of this consumer culture that needs to be destroyed because it's making, you know, it's it's ruining manhood um, is a very different message from what Sydney's up to in Network or Chayefsky too. Um, I think the, the idea in Network for me is about co-opting anger and manipulating it, you know, so sort of the idea that you can, you can, take people's anger and make it sell products, right? <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> like, um, and that anger is, it is looking at how easily manipulated people's anger is, you know, and how it doesn't really matter what the content is. Because <laughs> <you know? laughs> we see when, you know, when the main character changes his whole spiel, he doesn't really, I mean, his audience sort of falls off because he's not screaming and yelling and being angry. But there isn't really, it doesn't sort of, you know, the content is not the issue. It's what the affect is, if you see what I mean, um, right. rather than the content. So uh, that that idea of, you know, really, and then, of course, the, the, the black activists who are given contracts are arguing about their contracts. That were a very, <laughs> very funny scene, I think, yeah, you know. Um, distribution. Don't act with my... You know, so that kind of co-optation is, you know, part of what, He's he's really doing a kind of marvelous job at I think. I have a question for you. Something I'd bring up in our episode about that, and maybe you can uh, set me straight because I was actually a bit offended, but in retrospect, I think um, based on our discussion, maybe I shouldn't have been that they introduced some of the black characters in there with them eating fried chicken, and I was like, "Are you kidding me?" But oh, part see. of our discussion was, "Well, maybe that's a comment in itself," and guy, I don't. Well, my, my, my counter argument to Ron was that sometimes a cigar is just a cigar. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe. I mean, I can see that it's pushing the line. I think it, you know, um, again, I go back to the idea that everybody is satirized to some extent, you know, um, and that, um, you know, the Faye Dunaway character is way over the top, right, in terms of being this, this corporate bitch, you know, but I think that... Um, you know, I think it, it is potentially, I can see why. Do you know the story about the fried chicken? No. That the actor playing that character was actually a vegetarian. Oh, I did not <laughs> know And he had, he literally would spit the chicken out <laughs> after every cut. 
Oh, <laughs> um, he had a little bowl to spit the chicken out into. Um, uh, so anyway, that um, there's um, I can see a little discomfort with that. Well, uh, I think what was hard for me to detect um, was in the middle of all the satire you're talking about was was this a blind spot on the filmmaker's part or was it them trying to represent how other thing you know movies or tv shows might do that like i remember this episode of happy days where they had an actual black character come on and he was saying things like yeah i i like you know fried chicken and they were like oh do you like watermelon and i mean literally they were and this yeah. is you know not that long ago still yeah dealing with that as oh this is all we can see when we look at you and so that so maybe the movie was commenting on that i don't know i i don't want to put too much on it it is yeah and, and it's funny because i'm always saying i try not to apply today's standards to older works because otherwise you can't enjoy them but i'm always the one bringing up this stuff so. <laughs> <laughs> no i think it you know that's part of that's part of what you know what watching movies does you know like you would see these these mores evolving, and um, and I think, um, but I do think Sydney was very careful and conscious about issues of race. His daughters were growing up, and they were dealing with race, racial stuff, mm -hmm. um, because they're they were um, they a black mother, and he does go after racism in other of his movies very explicitly. Right. So mm -hmm. I I I also feel like Chayefsky who was a very conservative thinker, and he and Lumet really differed in their politics. Mm. And Chayefsky did not allow a single thing to be changed on that script. Right. And he was at every rehearsal, and he was at all the shootings. So it may be that Lumet might have not felt so comfortable. It's hard to know, but right. um, Chayefsky wanted it. Yeah. Totally by accident, we've done two other Chayefsky-related films. One was Ice Station Zebra, which he wrote the original script for that got tossed because the military wouldn't work with them if they used that script. The other one, which has a relation to this story, is Altered States, where he also tried to do that, show up and basically direct the film. <laughs> and the director kicked him off the set. And yeah, yeah. he had already had one director fired. So the producers <laughs> were like, yeah, you can't fire another director. We have to get this movie done. So. <laughs> Yeah, he was no. He was a, everyone says he was really difficult. <laughs> yeah. So let's it. talk about some of his other films. And one of the things I want to mention is that first of all, I just put Fight Club on the list because <laughs> I've never seen that, so I, I, it's just not one that comes up to mind. But I've heard about it so much that, uh, and it sounds like it's it's definitely something we should cover. But we put this list together. Many of the films one or both of us have seen, but some of them neither of us have. And it's not our assumption even that we'll like all of them. We just mm -hmm. wanted to, you know, put together films that really did represent this theme and then and then see what comes out of it. So one of those is Facing the Crowd. Neither Guy or I have seen it. No um, kidding. Oh, yeah. wow. You're in for something. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's really amazing. It feels, I mean, I recently taught it um, repeatedly because it feels so relevant to our time. Um, it really does take up issues of sort of class elites versus rural culture, you know, the rise of a demagogue, you know, um, really the uh, distrust of, you know, sort of seeing the creation of politicians as being, uh, I mean, there's a whole scene where the main character is telling a politician how to appear on television, because this is going to be like, 
he's going to be doing television ads and he doesn't have the right mannerisms and how to hold his face and, you know, really turning it into performance. And it's an amazing film. Um, uh, so you're in for something there. <laughs> and if I, if I understand correctly, Andy Griffith is the bad guy. Is that correct? Well, he, 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 like in many stories, like, you know, if you think of um, All the King's Men, you know, he starts out as a kind of, a lot of stories about populist demagogues, you know, they start out really caring about the people and then they get completely corrupted. Mm, <laughs> That's sort okay. of what happens, you know. <laughs> it's definitely, yeah. definitely one I'm looking forward to seeing. Anyway. Yeah, no, I, I think, uh, yeah, yeah, it's really, it's really amazing. Yeah, um, Body and Clyde is one that I have seen. In fact, I've done a whole deep dive and watched all the documentaries and watched the Highwaymen. Uh, a guy, do you? What's your familiarity there? I think I may have seen it when I was about ten years old. <laughs> it's been a long time. Now you said wow. that's another one that you teach, right? Yeah, I do. Um, and I find it. You know, I have trouble with it because it. But I, I, I remember seeing it as a teenager and I, and when it came out and I think, um, uh, or maybe not quite a teenager, preteen, not quite 10, <laughs> but I think that, um, it is kind of a, it does have a relationship, I feel like, to this moment of breaking bad. And I think, you know, it is this, you know, outlaw stories are one of the, staples of Hollywood movies from the very beginning. I mean, really, well, sure. uh, the great train robbery, you know. <laughs> but they have this, um, I think, this question of of what the violence meant at that time. And it was a new upping of violence, you know, this, it's gone beyond good taste, right? It's yeah. sort of the idea that a tasteful treatment of violence would be grotesque. And so yeah. this is, the, we're in the height of the Vietnam War, there's some way in which people are reading it. You're really in the throes of the generation gap, I feel here, which is another subject for your anger thing, I think, <laughs> is um, generation gaps. And, and, um, and I think that in some ways the film was claimed or celebrated by the left at the time because it was such a violation of bourgeois propriety and yeah. property relations. And, and it, it sort of shows a culture that eats its young, you know, but I think that there isn't a uh, ideological dimension to it that's overt. It's kind of like you have to, I find when I'm teaching, you have to sort of bring the students back into what the meaning meanings were in that time. And, and it's very interesting to hear what they, they make of, you know, the characters, the whole treatment of the, of the sexual dysfunction of Clyde and so forth gets a lot of attention from the kids. And I, you know, it's very interesting. Do they find it a romantic story? Um, I think they, they're kind of disturbed by it, you know, um, and, um, you know, I mean, they're, it's the first time apparently in movies that, Besides Potemkin, that somebody gets shot in the face, hmm. you know, um, and it really is referencing that scene in Potemkin that she gets shot through the eye, you know, through her sunglasses. But I think the idea of um, it's fun to teach it with other road movies hey. is another way to go at it, you know. <laughs> um, yeah, because um, they also they do um, the film is an early film that isn't giving you someone to identify with. And that will become again more and more of a thing. Yeah, um, and yeah. so the audience is, is put in a very weird position of feeling really like jerked around and emotionally confused, mm -hmm. but you don't have, you're not happy with them getting shot to smithereens at the end, but you also are not exactly 
pleased with their behavior either. So right, yeah. right. Uh, what? I just say road movies, and I imagine pairing this with Sideways, and I just find that kind of humorous. <laughs> well, there is some similarity in terms of the uh, the friend in Sideways who's a yeah. uh, Claude, but <laughs> um, I think also with the violence and the shockingness of that, and unlike many films where you could say, "Oh, they took a real situation and they really just you know took it to eleven, and maybe that was the wrong thing to do," uh, you know. Uh, that's a pretty accurate reflection of how violent yeah. that whole situation yeah. was. It's Yeah, I know. And I remember at the time, like, looking, I don't know, maybe how I even found it. This is long before the internet, you know, a picture of the real Bonnie and Clyde and how unglamorous they looked to me compared to these beautiful actors and, and, mm. um, and thinking that it, it did, it, it scared me in a way as a kid watching it. But I think the question of transgression and thrills and their really getting off on their publicity and creating this image, you know, it, it, it's a fascinating kind of orientation into the story. It's very different from the other makes of the story, right? There right. are some, yeah. Right. So in a whole other direction is 9 to 5, uh, yeah. which I, I love and consider to be a fun film. But Guy, yeah. do you have a background with that one, too? Um, I, if I remember right, I saw it in the theater. I remember uh, loving it from an early age. And this, I think, uh, you mentioned that uh, a lot of the movies on this list tie into a suspicion of corporations. And yeah. uh, this one is the corporation that won't even let people put family photos in their cubicles. Uh, you know, so it's, uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, I haven't seen it in a long time. It's not one I teach, but I remember thinking it was wonderful. Yeah, and I, I think part of uh, what's maybe an interesting twist on it compared to some of the others is that they're making fun of, you know, the man, right? They're making fun mm -hmm. of the machine, and they're kidnapping him, and he's a pathetic guy. So, And I, and I think we overlook, especially as people are always, you know, yelling at each other and increasing the intensity, we overlook the power of humor to bring down someone who needs to be brought down you know once the people in society can point to and laugh at a dictator yeah that dictator is done you know they have no yeah. more power you have to get yeah. enough people laughing though <laughs> <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> yeah 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 that's its own trick now they live is interesting oh um, yeah what a great little cult film <laughs> mm. yeah and again, Guy, have you seen that one? I don't remember. Oh, yeah. I, oh, I've true. seen that several times. Okay, it's been yeah. a while since the last, but I, and, I love it. Yep. You know, my politics are somewhat different then, but one of the things I like, and this is true with Do the Right Thing, which you have here too, is that there's some serious uh, disagreements I have with these films, but I think both They Live and Do the Right Thing are wonderful expressions of that emotion and... You know, they live, it's just one of those cases of, of taking the consumerist and, you know, the elites are controlling us to, mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> to, to the extreme. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also some kind of zombification of people, you know, yeah. like that, that I think that, I mean, I think of um, that kind of story. I mean, of course, it's Carpenter who's great on this, but you get in the 70s too, like this focus. And I, you guys ever seen um, Parallax View? Yes, with uh, Warren yeah. Beatty. Right? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. That's got a great <laughs> treatment of corporation. But I think the, mm -hmm. um, the sort of the sense of like elevator music 
and people living in these really artificial worlds. It was part of this 60s and 70s, you know, really like, ah, um, and, and feeling like, I mean, I think I connected to Hal, the voice of Hal in 2001, you know, this kind of, this neutering of existence in a way that the counterculture is trying to mess with, um, in a sense, uh, which I think is also going on in that, and they, they, they live. Yeah, yeah and, and and it manages just to be a really fun movie. Right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Amazing to have these very, very heavy, depressing themes, uh, but be something that's really enjoyable to watch. Yeah. Um, yeah. So speaking of Do the Right Thing, I mean, yeah. you know, that's not fun, really. <laughs> it has <laughs> obviously some f- fun in it, but uh, but the rage in it. Now, and, and one of the interesting things there, like I say, is I have some serious disagreements with Spike Lee. He tends to be a conspiracy theorist, and... In, and even some of the stuff that he put into Do the Right Thing are pretty objectively untrue things. But it just doesn't matter to me because the overall expression that's occurring there just feels so valid. And, yeah. you know, uh, you know and, and you can't deny it. And, and um, also, I, I always think about what it must feel like to be a director like that, where, yes, Spike Lee has done a lot of things and he's done some other good movies, but... I I still and I haven't seen all of his films, but I wouldn't compare any of them to this. Like, what's a you know, what must it be like to kind of do your your brilliant work as your first thing, you know, or your second thing, I guess. Yeah, I I think it's I think it's his greatest work too. I th- was thinking about it in terms of this question of rage and who's mad at whom, and you know, right. and you have this kind of. The way that I kind of boil it down in my mind is that the bigotry and rage is distributed, you know, <laughs> pretty yeah. equally, but that it's a black person who loses his life, you know, um, mm. and then no no sign that justice will follow from that. And the fact that when the film came out, there was all this media stuff that it was yeah. going to cause riots and, you know, Rambo had just come out. I mean, it's like, you know, only right. only a film about black people getting mad. <laughs> It's gonna, um, it's gonna cause riots and how offensive that was. I think um, I see the film as really quite. This time, I just taught it actually this semester, and I I see it as sort of a dialectical approach. You know, the question of MLK versus you know Malcolm yeah. X, and but it's that it's really trying to it's try really trying to keep showing how, you know. It's and it's not a simple this or that, you know. It's like mm-hmm. like relationships are complicated, as we see at the end. You know, when that scene when he has, you know, outside of the burned out, you know, pizza parlor, his crazy exchange. Um, right. uh, I I mean, I guess I I see it as quite thoughtful and thought provoking, and really okay. trying to say this is it's not so simple, is it, guys? <laughs> right. Yeah. I really love the film, and I think it's quite a masterpiece and the humor in it is just amazing really. yeah and how freaky that it's so again these movies made long ago 1989 that feel like they could have been made yesterday you know yep. another one i haven't seen i think you haven't seen guys falling down i haven't seen it my folks saw it in the theater and they loved it but uh i haven't seen it <laughs> it's one I'm I'm kind of guessing maybe I won't like, but I don't know. You know, I just know it as sort of a uh, guy going crazy and trashing a bunch of stuff because his life is in a bad place or something. <laughs> it's a white rage movie. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's interesting. I mean, I haven't seen it in a long time. And, I, you know, 
at times it feels like a satire on white rage and at other times it doesn't. So I, I need to see it again too. I, I can't recall how much it's won and how much it's, again, this question of is a film exploring anger or is it provoking anger? You know right. what I mean? Right. Um, and I, and I think, um, it's, it's a good, it's a good question in that film. Um, it's a good film to think about. Yeah. Well, and that came up a lot in those early 70 films, right? Um, yeah, the <laughs> 70s like Dirty Harry and Bronson's, um, drawing the blank again, Death Wish. Death Wish, yes. Um, that, you know, that same question, just like with Do the Right Thing, right? Is this, is this a legitimate movie experience or is it something that is going to drive the audience to, you know, yeah. do bad things? I think we never well, get away from yeah. that question. I, f I feel like Sidney Lumet really was specifically working against those two movies. Like, mm -hmm. he will never end a movie with that violence is the solution. I think, you I think in, your, in your book you mentioned that Serpico you saw as a reaction to those. Yeah, I think that um, those movies are their, um, you know, revenge, that whole thing of, of what justifies violence, what justifies it, you know, setting it up I've heard somebody describe, you know, a whole genre of American movies this way. Who do you want to see killed and who do you want to see kill them? Yeah. You know, um, which I think is very, very true. Right. And that those movies are set up that way. You know, with that you're just willing for the right guy, you know, for your hero to kill that guy. <laughs> and, um, and I, I, you know, that's, that's not, you know, I don't right. think it's, I don't think it's good. <laughs> Not the most constructive use of film, maybe. Right. Yeah. Now, one that I had forgotten to put on the list I gave you, and it's a movie that I'm the only person on the planet who hasn't seen yet, which is Office Space. Uh, we were we were going to do uh, Idiocracy, but both Guy and a, a guest we had on another show were like, no, it's got to be Office Space. So we switched into that. Gosh, I, I remember my son really liking it, but I don't know that I actually saw it. <laughs> Maybe I should. I must should. Yeah, there's a whole lot of memes and stuff that you don't get if you don't, if you haven't seen it. Yeah. Trust me. <laughs> well, Guy, do you want to talk about that a bit since you're the one? Um, oh, just briefly. It's um, there's not a whole lot of rage in it. A few moments of it, but mostly it's um, a bunch of computer programmers who work for some kind of a uh, finance company that isn't really described in detail, but they uh, uh, they end up doing the old, uh, what was it, Superman 2 or Superman 3 thing where you shave the pennies off and put them in a separate uh, account. Uh-huh. Um, and, uh, of course, things go horribly wrong. So this could also be in the uh, a simple plan category. Uh -huh. Another yeah, thing yeah, we that we're considering. We, yeah. yeah. I, a simple plan is, I think, a perfect movie. And, uh, you know, we, you know, yeah. Add Dog Day to that one, yeah. to that list. Dog Day <laughs> Afternoon should go on that list. Oh, yeah, yeah. Hmm. Heists, oh, yeah. they go wrong. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but you know, Guy had pointed out <laughs> one way that Office Space is perfect is a famous scene, and it is literal rage against the machine where they take baseball bats to the uh, the <laughs> copier, I think, yeah. for the printer. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. Uh, then we have one, boy, this uh, just resonates throughout my life, which is Watchmen, because I was reading those comics when they came out, and I've done every, I, I know everything about, you know, Watchmen, <laughs> and the TV series, et cetera. So powerful, I thought. I really, I mean, I, I thought it was such, 
such a fascinating way to adapt that story. I mean, it mm -hmm. just was amazing to to move it from the Nixonian world to you know to take it into this question of racial dynamics and and um, and and really open with the Tulsa massacre. I mean, it was just amazing. Well, so now you're talking about the TV series, which is great, and we're going to yeah. be talking about the movie. Oh, okay. Um, we sorry, may sorry. Do, no, that's okay. We may do the TV series sometime. I, but I totally agree with you. First of all, I would have bet $1,000 there is no way the TV series would be anything but crap. And I was really surprised. Um, and uh, like you said, yeah. The, the, and, and in fact, uh, probably me and a whole lot of people learned about the Tulsa massacre from that series. One of the things that's an interesting difference between the movie and that, and, and the movie uh, is a mixed bag for me. I, I don't think it's fully successful, but the, the, what surprised me about it is that, and of course we'll talk about this when we do it, but the parts I would have thought would be hard, they got right. And the parts that should have been easy, mm. they got wrong. And that is the hardest things to do from Watchmen should be the godlike character, Dr. Manhattan, Mm -hmm. And Rorschach, who's the psychotic guy, those were really well done in the movie. Mm. The regular characters, the regular people were miscast and, mm. you know, it just uh, <laughs> did not work for me. That's, that's my, anyway. But an interesting difference between the movie and the series, the movie changed the ending of the comic. So at the end of the comic, this giant squid is sort of teleported in that's supposed to be an alien and get everybody to, um, uh, and thousands of people die when this happens and it's supposed to get everybody aligned on earth, uh, toward a common enemy and Man. the squid thing, uh, for a brilliant comic, the squid thing never quite worked. And so I actually liked the change they made in Watchmen, which instead was that they, uh, they turn politically turn Dr. Manhattan into the enemy. And that's where okay. the enemy comes from, which actually I thought was a logical part of the story but the tv series embraced the squid and actually made it work <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's true and the, even the way they sh shot it in that fairy you know, fairground oh, yeah it was pretty amazing yeah and also the whole jeremy irons parts in that again like i had no idea what was going on and then it just connected beautifully to the story and again that was one of the things that they really messed up in the movie was the the person they got to play that character, Ozymandias, in the movie was too young and did not have the gravitas and could not pull off the smartest guy in the world. You know, obviously someone, that's the kind of perfect Robert Downey Jr. sort of role, right? Um, but Jeremy Irons playing that role as an old man was just brilliant. I just loved it. <laughs> so, yeah, we, maybe we need to cover the TV series sometime. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, also, Alan Moore authored uh, V for Vendetta. Right. Um, Another, and you know, yeah. we're trying to get, we're hoping to get a Brit on to, uh, help us with that since it's so mm. much British history, but talk about the original, you know, rage against the machine. It's all inspired yes. by the gunpowder plot and people trying to blow up parliament and almost yes. succeeding. You know? Yes, yeah. yes, yes. Um, well, I remember seeing it and being kind of confused about the politics of the film like trying to get it was this anarchy is are we celebrating anarchy what's right. happening <laughs> you know? I, I think the politics are disturbing i think that what alan moore at that time anyway was pushing for was something that i would quite disagree with i mean it, to put it in gross current terms this is january 6th stuff 
Um, yeah. Very much. Yeah. I mean, actually, it's very yeah. similar, except, you know, <laughs> this was fortunately, uh, January 6th people were fortunately not as on top of it. And I would argue that that's what, what Alan Moore was arguing for England, because he was reacting to Margaret Thatcher. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and sort of, you know, bringing that story into there again. Uh, have you seen this one guy? Are you familiar with this background? Uh, I saw it a few years ago and I, uh, I liked it. It, it, it hasn't, I haven't since had the urge to rewatch it, but I could see myself uh, checking it out. Well, I guess I will be. If it's <laughs> yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I won't be, I won't be unhappy to rewatch it. Yeah. yeah. Uh, yeah. and then we have, um, you know, th- this was actually recommended by, I guess, so uh, Kill Bill. <laughs> Watch those. Mm-hmm. Uh, I hadn't thought of it as, as sort of Rage Against the Machine, but it is sort of a, I guess, a, you know, a kind of a female rage. Um, yeah, it's good know. to have some of that. I see you have Phil and Louise, too. Oh, yeah, I forgot um, to talk about that one. Yeah. <laughs> and I feel like, um, for me, the fact that Phil and Louise ends in suicide, so yeah. many, so many 19th century novels of women end in suicide. <laughs> Wait uh, a minute, we need another ending. Um, I've never been a, a big devotee of Kill Bill, but I get the idea. It's yeah. really pretty wild. Um, it's very transgressive, isn't it? I mean, it's very, Yeah, and it's, it's you know, another one that, you know, yeah, it takes violence over the top and get criticized <laughs> for that. But, but also, I, it, Certain film critics really have gone after Tarantino for violence in films like this, and I just feel like they're they're portraying such an ignorance of what's going on. I mean, he's bringing in Hong Kong history, and okay. you know, he's bringing in all this history. Of this he's not. This isn't coming out of nowhere. This isn't someone putting down their you know violent fantasy. You right. know, so like you almost might be able to say for V for Vendetta, right? No, this is someone yeah. who is trying to respect and build on film history. And and do it in a way that's going to be very entertaining for people. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Did, but, have you seen Killing Eve? No, I haven't. Well, have a look. I'll make a note of it. I've been taking a few notes as we've been talking. <laughs> now there was a film while we were talking. Guy made a note of this, and it's one we had talked about originally whether to do or not. Just for a number of films, we ended up cutting it. It was God Bless America, which is Bob Goldwyn, right? Bobcat Goldthwait made it, yep. yeah, and I, 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 I get the impression. Now I haven't seen it, and that's one of the reasons that I, I was curious about whether or not it should be on the list. But from what I understand, it's kind of a uh, left-wing equivalent of the right-wing rage movies. Huh. Um, but I haven't seen it, so yeah. I just thought we'd throw it out and see if you had any well, thoughts about well, it. Well, my attempt to keep the list down has failed, so we might as well <laughs> throw it in. <laughs> I don't know it. I, I'm making a note of it myself. I, I, have you? Do you guys know the movie Joe? Joe. It sounds familiar. It's a, I... That's another white rage movie, but it's from the left perspective. Hmm. Um, okay. It's kind of like um, you know, it's sort of in the family of, of falling down. I guess let's okay. say, um, yeah. Okay. Well, you no, know, it's very interesting. Very, very interesting. I, okay. I am. Um, I feel like there was something else I wanted to say about network that I forgot to say. Oh, I know. I mean, part of what has been very weird for me is that um, the I'm mad as hell and I'm not going to take it anymore has gone from being sort of something that was more of the left's voice in seventy mid-70s to being a right-wing 
Mm-hmm. voice and that you know sort of like wait don't no you can't have that <laughs> wait a second you know and yeah. um, and I, I think I, this yeah I, I think nowadays with uh, with the baby boom generation being in charge of a lot of society I think I think in some ways it's a lot easier to perceive the left as being the establishment now okay. um, so yeah yeah I, yeah, I think that's true that is true. Yeah. I think the question of, you know, sort of, you know, for me, one of the big issues, and it feels relevant to your topic that I know you've probably heard pundits talk about, I keep thinking about it as sort of the institutionalists versus the more radicals, you know, like mm-hmm. how, you know, most of the many of the Democrats are really institutionalists and they're trying to hold on to these rules and hold on to these institutions and the other side isn't playing that way so what do we do i mean and i feel like that there needs to be a great film that really explores that you know i can't think of one yeah well and i think going back to those 70s films one of the things we see here is a chain an evolution from it being the left-wing thing to say that we need to fear the government some three days of the condor um etc uh to you know now it's it's kind of reversed so it's interesting yes yes absolutely absolutely yeah and that was something that struck me as um as i was reading your book is um you mentioned the role of the fbi uh like in um uh, it turned out that a lot of the aftermath of uh uh, was it Leonard Bernstein's yes. uh, famous yeah. party that Tom Wolfe wrote about? It turned yes. out that uh, the FBI had been orchestrating a lot of the controversy around yeah. that. And in recent years, you're finding that the right is now getting that same skepticism about the FBI, where in the past there wasn't nearly so much well, of it. We just, uh, we yeah. just watched a movie, uh, The Mouse That Roared. Oh um, yeah, cause, is that um, Peter Sellers? Yeah, yeah, and we we were watching it because we're doing Doctor Who from the beginning, and the first Doctor was William Hartnell, and he was one of the actors in The Mouse at Road. <laughs> and so, in doing research for that, I was shocked to find out that uh, Jean Seberg, John, however her <laughs> name would be, <laughs> committed suicide basically because of the FBI. At least that's her husband's <laughs> allegation, because she was one of the key targets of COINTEL Pro, which was a program which might be related to what Guy was just talking about, where they actively set out to undermine and destroy the lives of people that they felt um, had yeah. the wrong politics. And so she was supportive of the Black Panthers, and they started uh, releasing rumors that she had had a baby from a Black Panther and that sort of thing. And she, her baby miscarried, and every year after the baby miscarriage, she would attempt suicide and eventually oh. she succeeded. Wow. Um, so, you know, yeah, it's a, a depressing yeah. way to end our this whole discussion yeah. here, but maybe, yeah. maybe, you know, maybe shows what these films are all about. I guess. Yeah. 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 One of the other things I kind of noticed in doing these politics film courses is how the federal government is represented in, you know, the mid-century films as the good guy and local mm-hmm. poly- local people are the bad guys, you know. And mm-hmm. then 
it gets kind of in Mississippi burning, it gets flipped. And I saw that as like, okay, there's a shift happening right here in the 80s. Um, So anyway, let me ask you if you would agree with this, because I have not seen Mississippi burning since it came out, but I hated that film yeah because what what it said was oh these black people will not stand up for themselves and they're sitting around here until the nice white guys from the fbi show up and start fighting for the black people and i'm like what is this yeah no i agree (laughs) it was really problematic and i really resent it that it sort of has this afterlife for some reason people do still watch it Hmm. yeah 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 i'm with you i'm with you yeah. Well, unfortunately, we, we finish on a downer, but I guess our topic <laughs> leads us with that. But thank you so much for doing this with yeah, us, Maura. So you. fun talking to you guys. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for you know having me. Do yes, you have any kind of social media presence? I do not. Can, I have no okay. social media presence. <laughs> <laughs> that may be for the best. Let's just say yeah. don't, don't start. <laughs> you're, you're probably deriving a lot of peace of mind that you're not even aware of from that. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I figure. <laughs> yeah, well, well, good luck with everything, and I'll be following you guys. You know, oh, I'll be paying you. attention, oh, and um, really enjoyed talking to you. Likewise, hey, so, thank you very much. And one should join us next week for our first rage-filled film network. <laughs> <laughs> okay, <laughs> bye bye. Bye bye.